0: Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner.
1: I'm Zatanna. What do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Welcome to Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and on this episode, I'm going to cover the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories from World's Finest Comics, issue 247. If you've been following this podcast for a while, you know that I've been reviewing the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories published in World's Finest during the Dollar Comic era. If you haven't been following along, and this is maybe your first time listening to the show, um, well, welcome. Uh, I'm Ryan, and I like superheroes who wear fishnets. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that subject, but I hope you at least like Black Canary, Zatanna, or the other heroes of the Justice League, because that's what I spend this podcast talking about. As I said, this episode continues the Blonde Bombshell and the Emerald Archer stories from World's Finest. Since the late 1960s, the two operated as partners both in crime fighting and in love. They each individually starred in a ten-page story in World's Finest issues 244-246, through 246. but because the characters were so intimately linked, the stories tended to overlap, or connect to each other in some way. Their stories in issue 247 conclude the narrative that began two issues earlier. Black Canary stars in the first ten pages, and then Green Arrow takes over bringing the whole story to a close with the second ten pages. For some reason, though, the story is further subdivided into chapters. Each half of the story is split into two chapters, but there is no reason for this. I don't know why they bothered to give the story chapter headings, but whatever. Anyway, let's get started. World's Finest issue 247 has an October-November 1977 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was July 19th, 1977. The issue cost $1, as it was from the Dollar Comics era, and for that bill you got 80 pages that included a lead story starring Superman and Batman, as well as backup stories starring Wonder Woman and The Vigilante, as well as the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories that I'm covering today. Jack C. Harris edited the book, and the cover was drawn by José Luis García López. Praise be his name. Black Canary's half of the story is called Requiem of Rage, written by Jerry Conway, illustrated by Sal Amendola, lettered by Morris Waldinger, and colored by Liz Ruby. Black Canary narrates this part of the story, and over the course of the first couple of pages, recaps what happened last issue. She went to Canada to investigate the possibility of another human-animal hybrid after a lumberjack was found mauled by what people suspected was an abnormally large wolf. Once there, Dinah found the cabin of Professor Grant, whose notes indicate that he performed the genetic experiments that created the man-bear back in World's Finest, issue 245, and now he's created a werewolf called Wolf, with a U. Black Canary found Professor Grant murdered, and suspected that he was killed by the mysterious financier who paid him to create these Animan creatures. After that, Dinah went back to her hotel, stripped naked, and jumped in a hot shower, never realizing that Wolf had followed her from the cabin, and now lurked right outside her door. And that is where this issue story really begins. Dinah Lance, naked and wet, gets out of the shower and wraps a towel around her lady parts. Distracted by events from the day, she doesn't realize the wolf is in her hotel room until he makes a low guttural snarling sound. Rather than panic at the sight of a giant wolf in her room, she shows us why she's part of the Justice League of America by kicking the monster in the face, knocking it on its ass. Then again, rather than running for cover, she pounces on the hairy beast. But Wolf is fast and strong. He grabs Dinah and throws her across the room. She lands on the bed and decides the best strategy is a ranged attack. She blasts Wolf with her canary cry. The sonic wave slams him against the wall. But the werewolf's next action is more surprising than any attack. He speaks. In strained English, Wolf begs Dinah for help. Help avenging his master. A short time later, we see Dinah dressed as Black Canary, riding her motorcycle, with Wolf riding behind her. I'm not exactly sure what happened between these scenes, but Black Canary is extremely trusting to have a Wolfman riding on her back, his massive clawed hands wrapped around her, his jaws just inches away from her neck. I can't think of a more vulnerable position for Dinah to be in, and this is coming right after she fought him naked in a hotel room. Instead of biting her head off, though, Wolf explains his side of the story. After creating him, Professor Grant taught Wolf how to speak, but Wolf always desired contact with his own kind. One night, he snuck away to socialize with a pack of true wolves, but they rejected him and attacked. In pain and in shame, Wolf wandered alone for a while. When he finally returned to the professor's cabin, he witnessed the aftermath of Grant's murder. The lumberjack named Pierre had killed Grant when the scientist refused to turn over his data about Wolf to his financier, an obese man who speaks in a kind of pigeon French accent. Wolf watched the obese man leave in a helicopter, while Pierre stuck around to hide the evidence of Grant's murder. When Pierre returned to the cabin, he found Wolf grieving over his dead master. In fear, Pierre lashed out with an axe. Wolf defended himself and fought the lumberjack, eventually killing the man in self-defense. After that, Wolf hid until he saw Black Canary fighting the other lumberjacks when she found Grant's body. He sensed the goodness in her and followed her back to her hotel, smartly waiting for her to get naked before approaching her. After getting the story, Black Canary uses her Justice League credentials to get some info from the Canadian government. The helicopter that Wolf saw leave the cabin belongs to a man named Marcel Moreau, an illegal arms dealer and war profiteer who owns an island off the coast. A guy named Moreau with his own island? How quaint. Canary and Wolf ride to the coastal village of saint lorraine Lagur, where they can take a boat to the island of Marcel Moreau. It's nearly dawn when they reach the wharf, however, and the nocturnal part of Wolf overrides his senses. He slinks off in fear. Black Canary decides to press on without him, taking a boat to the island. As she's sneaking up the coast toward Moreau's castle, she's ambushed by one of his security guards. She easily fights him off, but then another were-creature, I'm thinking some sort of puma animan, jumps on her. Canary throws the were-puma to the ground, but she doesn't see a sniper taking aim. The shot rings out, the bullet grazes her head. Her wig may have saved her life, but she falls unconscious. Hours later, as the sun is now setting, Black Canary wakes up, the captive of Dr. Moreau. He welcomes her to his Laboratory of Lost Souls, which is full of human-animal hybrid creatures. But the welcome won't last long, for tomorrow, he promises, she will die for interfering with his scheme. Okay, I will stop here at the end of the Black Canary section and give my thoughts about the first half of the story. And I will say it started out fantastic. Let's begin with a new name on the creative front, artist Sal Amendola. You heard me praise Mike Nasser, a.k.a. Mike Netzer, on the previous installments. Nasser was terrific on the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories, so to learn that he's off the finale to the story would normally sink my heart. But Amendola does a really good job here. He didn't have a super productive career in comics. He worked on maybe 20 DC comics throughout the 70s and early 80s. But in that time, he did work on Superman and Batman, the Teen Titans, some horror stories, and the John Carter Warlord of Mars stories from Weird Worlds. I won't say that I like him more than Mike Nasser, but Amendola's work on this story is pretty great. First of all, he plays with the heavy inks and shadows, which is appropriate for this monster story when you've got a giant werewolf as your second lead. Amendola also draws a hell of a good-looking Black Canary. I mean, he already had my attention because she's mostly naked for the first half of the story, with nothing but a towel around her. But more than that, his Black Canary, when she's in costume, I mean, looks great. She's got full, luscious lips and big cartoon eyes. Damn, girl looks good. And his Dr. Moreau, okay, I'll talk more about who Moreau is as a character after the next segment, but from an art standpoint, he casts a striking visual. He's got kingpin size, but you can tell that a lot more of it is fat than muscle. But he also has this wild white hair and these crazy eyes, and the French, oh mon dieu, Okay, on to the story. First, great opening. I mentioned last time how the previous issue ended with a great horror movie cliffhanger. The beautiful woman undressing as a monster stalks her outside. What we see this time, though, is that Black Canary is no standard horror heroine. When she hears a monster sneaking up on her, she doesn't panic, she doesn't run screaming the way other women would in this case. Oh, hell, you know what? Why am I gender-specifying? I would run screaming in her position, or else I would just crumple into a fetal position and let the werewolf do whatever it wanted to me. But that's not what Dinah does. She kicks it in the face, then she jumps on him. That is an action hero, man. Of course, I'm less than happy about how this section ends with Black Canary getting captured and tied up for Dr. Moreau, because it sets up that Green Arrow still has to come to her rescue, and I'm just tired of those types of stories already. Before moving on, I have two questions. First, why does Wolf speak English? Wouldn't he speak French? I mean, I assumed that Grant was French-Canadian like the other characters in the story, but I could be wrong. Maybe that was just me making an ass out of you and me. Second question, last issue, Black Canary was drawn to Canada after Pierre's body was found mauled by a giant wolf. But later on, she found Professor Grant's body in the cabin. Weren't Grant and Pierre killed in the same place? That's what it looked like in this issue. Why would Pierre's body be discovered and Grant's not? It wouldn't make sense for Wolf to move Pierre's body, and even if he did, he's not sophisticated enough to cover the trail. And if the body was found anywhere near the cabin, the police would have tried to question Professor Grant, if only to ask him if he heard anything, or had seen any larger-than-normal wolves around. They should have found his body the same day, so this part of Wolf's story doesn't really make sense. Either the werewolf is lying or Jerry Conway messed up. I choose to believe wolf, because humans have proved to be treacherous and deceitful, whereas savage monsters can always be trusted. Time for a short promotional break, then I will be back with Green Arrow story that wraps up this adventure. Don't go away.
0: Two hundred and twenty-nine different characters spanning the galaxies of the Legion of Superheroes presented across seven comic book issues. A new miniseries as part of the Who's Who podcast. To handle this many characters, the Irredeemable Shag is bringing in a ringer, or maybe we should call them flight ringers. Who's Who in the Legion of Who's Who in the Legion of who's, who's, who's Who in the Legion of who the Legion of Superheroes in of The Legion of Superbloggers team up to present Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, a three-episode miniseries in 2017, part of the Who's Who podcast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Long live the Legion.
1: Green Arrow's half of the story is titled, Isle of Hate, Island of Dread. Like the previous half of the story, Green Arrow's section is written by Jerry Conway, penciled and inked by Sal Amendola, and colored by Liz Barubi. The only difference is this half of the story is lettered by Clem Robbins. This section begins with Green Arrow narrating, and like Black Canary before, he recaps what happened in the previous issue. In this case, Green Arrow captured the villain Slingshot after he robbed a racketeer named Reggie Ronson. Once Slingshot was in police custody, Green Arrow returned to take down the racket. He crashes through the window of Ronson's hideout. Women run screaming, while gangsters go for their guns. The archer draws back his bow and lets fly his experimental tri-collar arrow. It basically cuffs three different guys to the wall before they can shoot him. Then Green Arrow takes down the rest of the hoods, and finally Reggie Ronson himself. After it's over, Detective Mac Morgan of the Star City Police offers to drive Green Arrow home. Arrow takes Morgan up on his offer. During the drive, his thoughts turn to how he lost his fortune in his civilian identity as Oliver Queen. He even wonders who might be living in the former Queen estate these days. Morgan drops him off in the slums, and Green Arrow walks home. Ollie quickly falls asleep, and then just as quickly wakes up when the phone rings later that night. Detective Morgan tells him that Black Canary is in danger. Ali puts his Green Arrow costume back on and rushes to Central Station. There, Morgan explains that the cops received a call from San Lorraine Liguer in British Columbia, Canada. Black Canary left orders that if she didn't return to San Lorraine by nightfall, the officials should call the Star City Police. Well, it's sundown in British Columbia now, and no sign of Black Canary. Green Arrow thanks Morgan, and activates his Justice League signal device. He teleports up to the JLA satellite in orbit 22,300 miles above the Earth. The Flash is on monitor duty, and wonders why Green Arrow has come to relieve him hours ahead of schedule. But Ali doesn't stop to explain. As soon as he reaches the satellite, he teleports back down to Earth, specifically to the coastal village near the island of Dr. Moreau. Ollie arrives on the wharf in San Lorraine. He senses something approaching from the shadows and draws his bow and arrow. Wolf steps out of the shadows, not as a threat, but as a friend. Wolf tells Green Arrow that he is friends with Black Canary. He explains everything about the last two issues, and then he and Green Arrow take a boat to the island to save Dinah. Wolf's superior size and strength proves invaluable in taking out the hybrid-animan sentries that they come across. They infiltrate the castle, and then Wolf dives into a pack of hybrid creatures, drawing attention to himself so that Green Arrow can sneak around and find Black Canary. Ollie takes out one of the Anim men with a gas arrow, and blinds a few others with a magnesium flare arrow. He takes out the last were-leopard guarding Dinah, but before he can free his lover, an explosion of knockout gas takes Green Arrow down. The archer wakes up in a tight spot. He and Black Canary are dangling over a vat of acid. Dr. Moreau has Wolf strapped to a table attached to some weird-looking machines the villain tells Green Arrow about how he always identified with the Dr. Moreau from H.G. Wells' story, of a man who made beasts into men. Good thing he already had that name, huh? This Moreau made manifest the same concept, using the professor's science to create an army of animen. He then throws a switch, sending energy jolting through Wolf. Moreau tells his captives that he has brainwashed Wolf, reducing him to nothing but a predatory creature who will take orders from Moreau. He then orders the werewolf to pull a rope that will drop the heroes into the acid. Wolf looks at Green Arrow with nothing but the cold, merciless eyes of an animal. But when he looks at Black Canary, he feels something else. In defiance of Moreau's command, Wolf tears into the vat of acid. The caustic liquid spills out, flooding the room, killing the werewolf and Dr. Moreau. The acid hits the machines, causing small explosions that set the room on fire. Green Arrow uses a heat arrow to free himself and Black Canary. He shoots a high-wire arrow out the window, and the two of them zip line away from the castle just as the fire ignites the fuel cells. The massive explosion destroys the castle. Ollie and Dinah survive, and watch the raging fire from the safety of the beach. Dinah wonders if Wolf's last act was to save them because he knew they were friends. Ollie suspects that Moreau's brainwashing failed, that once given, a human soul could not be taken away from the beast. And that ends the story. So what did I think of this section? Well, there's tons of action which is good for a Green Arrow story. The more time he spends fighting and the less time he spends talking is always a plus in my book but I don't like that Green Arrow has to come and save Black Canary, even though that's not really how the story ends. This saga of the Animan had to end, and I'm glad that it's over but I am disappointed that Dinah got captured in the penultimate chapter and needed to be saved by her boyfriend and the werewolf. Yes, I know Green Arrow was the bigger, more marketable hero at the time, and comics have historically been written for boys who identify, generally, with male protagonists. I get all that. I understand why the structure of the story would lead to this kind of finale. But I still don't like it. I would have rather seen Black Canary bring down Moreau and his Island of Monsters. And Ali could help her. He could be there, sure. But I would want her to be the instrumental force that undoes the Crooked Doctor. And speaking of Moreau, I already talked about how Amendola drew him. He gets a few more close-ups in this story, and he looks as savage and monstrous as his soul is. The whole point of this story and the homage to H.G. Wells' character is that Moreau is less human and more animal than his creations. We see that in the purity of his evil. But that's not enough to make a lasting villain. He had to die at the end of the story. His visual is cool, but he would always be compared to the Kingpin or Tobias Whale. And also, the island of Dr. Moreau? You can't go back to that well a second time. I would even argue that maybe Conway overdid it this one time. Sal Amendola's art is pretty good in this one, but it gets a little muddy when the heroes storm the castle. At various times, it's hard to tell what Wolf is doing, and the final death trap scene really lacks a sense of setting. And the moment when Wolf breaks the ast that, it's pretty clear, though not explicit, that Moreau is washed away by the acid and killed. We're left to infer that the same fate happened to Wolf himself. Still, Amandola gets the atmosphere and the mood of the scene, and the pages are nice to behold. Overall, while I'm not in love with the Island of Dr. Moreau homage, I like that the story came together with the heroes fighting, looking good, and bringing the saga to its conclusion. After four issues of World's Finest, we seem to have wrapped up the Slingshot storyline and the hybrid animal saga. Where Black Canary and Green Arrow go from here is wide open. And with that, I am going to take another promo break, and then I'll come back with your listener feedback. Andy,
0: I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast.
2: We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about?
0: Something no one else is talking about. Batman.
2: (sighs) Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one.
0: True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, Maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run.
2: Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run.
0: But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well.
2: And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index index show. Great! Uh, I guess we should do a trailer.
0: I think we kind of just did.
2: Yeah, but it's missing something. Like, you should have added music behind us or something.
0: Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast.
2: We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about?
0: Something no one else is talking about. Batman.
2: (sighs) Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well,
0: maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those! True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run.
2: Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run.
0: But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index-index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com launch in May of 2017 from the Fortress of bailey Podcasting Network.
1: Last episode Michael Bradley helped me cover Zatanna's sort of appearance in World's Finest Comics 207. We received favorites and retweets on Twitter from Alex at Assam Harris 15, Browncoat Tour, Comic Reflections, Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M Cox, Gregor Arujo, It's My Life at Dono the Rhino, Jeffrey Brown, Keith G Baker, Pod Dylan, Robert Lewis, Rolled Spine Podcast, Syscoid and Treasury Comics. If I missed anybody on that list, please let me know and I will give you a shout out next time. Over on Facebook, we got likes and shares from Abel Padilla, AJ Schwister, Billy Lacasse, Brian Cray, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Foster, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, H. Daniel Ribel, Jared West, Jonathan Brown, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, Nicholas Prom, Rob Kelly, Scott Cage, Sean Emmons, The Irredeemable Shag, Siskoid, Van Z, and Zoom Yukonori. Last episode, I made a bit of a thing about iTunes reviews, and I managed to guilt at least one person into leaving a review. I've actually got two new reviews to read, though one of them was left back in December, but I didn't notice it because it was left on the iTunes Canada page. The first new review comes from Bold Robin. It's five stars and says, fun podcast dedicated to two great female heroes. Ryan enthusiastically examines comics related to two of DC Comics' great superheroines, Black Canary and Zatanna. Both were members of the Justice League, both wore fishnets, and both, when written correctly, are strong characters. Ryan explores decades' worth of comics. His style is pleasant, funny, but not excessively smug. A pleasure to listen to. Hm, funny, but not excessively smug. That is what I aim for, believe me. I just so rarely hit the mark. The other review is from Gord Tolton, who also left his review on the Canadian page. And his review is more of a response to the last episode, but I'll take whatever he has to say so long as he attaches five stars to it. And Gord says, As a lifelong fan of two very underrated female superheroes, I thoroughly enjoy this show, and the romp through the eras of Black Canary and Zatanna, especially through my childhood of the 70s. One thing I just wanted to note on the World's Finest story with Zatanna, kinda, this occurs in the little-remembered era of World's Finest Comics, when DC was desperately trying to break out of the Weisinger mold after that August editor's dictatorship on Superman-related titles. A lot of bold experiments came out of all of that, including Kirby on Jimmy Olsen, Clarkor chopping Lois Lane, a more independent Supergirl, and Kryptonite Nevermore. At World's Finest, someone rightly recognized that DC had two team-up titles with Batman as an anchor, the other being the Brave and the Bold, so Superman became the sole anchor of a revolving team up in World's Finest, similar to what later happens in DC Comics Presents. For about 2 or 3 years, we saw Superman partner with the primary DC Universe heroes- The Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, etc., but we also got to see some inspired team-ups with the Teen Titans, the Earth-2 relegated Doctor Fate, the all-but-forgotten-in-that-era-Martian Manhunter, and of course my personal favorite, the Vigilante. For some reason, in the middle of that run, this story appeared, which has always confused me. Was DC trying to spike sales and not confident in the experiment? Not like DC would ever deliberately overexpose the character or anything. But it's too bad they never chose to give Zatanna a bigger role in the story, and thus title billing consistent with the era. Perhaps someone with access to a network should do a podcast on this era. What else are Rob and Shag going to do with their time, babysit or something? (laughs) Uh, yeah, not likely. Um, speaking of Superman's team-up with Dr. Fate, that will be coming up in the very next episode, actually. And yes, someone should definitely do a podcast on this era of World's Finest. That is awesome stuff that Gord was talking about. So, Thank you, Gord and Bold Robin, for your iTunes reviews. Moving on to the website comments left over at the Fire & Water podcast network. As always, you can read these comments or leave your own at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Chris Franklin, my friend and co-host on Batman Nightcast. Chris says, Nice to hear Michael Bradley covering Superman and Batman again. I really miss that podcast. I like Dick Dillon, but Joe Giella really softens up his art here. I prefer him inked by Dick Giordano or Frank McLaughlin, someone with a harder, crisper style. And then Sir Print added, As an old school Justice League fan, I was a big fan of Dick Dillon, especially when inked by Frank McLaughlin. The male heroes looked strong and powerful, while the female heroes looked strong and powerful as well as beautiful. I do, however, agree that sometimes his artwork could look a little wooden. Bradley Null left a handful of confused comments that basically amount to World's Finest 207 is where he first encountered Zatanna, and despite the fact that the issue has a 25-cent cover price, Bradley thinks he paid a dollar for it. Moving on, Rob Kelly from the Treasury cast and several other podcasts said, A whole episode based on two panels? At this rate, the show can go on forever. I'm hoping there are some stories where Z only appears in one panel, just so you can break your own record. You know, you may be joking, Rob, but just wait till I cover Justice League of America issue 114. You might get your wish. And Rob goes on to say, Nice to hear Michael Bradley on a podcast again. Completely agree, that's why I invited him. Uh, He says, Dr. Light always gets in his own way. He's 50% mendacious, 50% stupid. So look for him to run on the GOP platform in 2024. Oh, and f*** Priebus. Dr. Ange of the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, In the famous Sand Superman storyline, all kryptonite on Earth was turned to iron. Superman was eventually depowered by about a third. It was variable if editors followed this new reality. Ange goes on, This was the craziest plot ever, and the scheme was the most convoluted, needlessly so. And I don't care if you are used to being paid. If you're a criminal and a killer and you have the chance to off Batman, you do it. You'd never have to buy another meal. You'd have mega street cred. I know, that that is a good point, Ange. That part of the story was just completely asinine. We, we kind of glossed over it in our review because so much of the story was crazy anyway. Um... Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I bought this one at the time, and I like the cover a lot more than you guys. Great composition, intriguing situation. I think Joe Giallo was a pretty decent inker for Dylan. The heroes looked wonderfully clean, including Zatanna. Uh, we got a comment, I believe our first comment from Brown who said, I always loved that late 60s, early 70s hair flip Dick Dylan would add when drawing Zatanna. Matter of fact, she has the same hairstyle when she magically appears in Justice League of America issue 100 for the 100th meeting, Shindig. And who else should be gawking and ogling her when she shows up in all her leggy glory but Superman and the Flash, pervin' a dish as ever? I'd also like to note that JLA-100 appearance of Zatanna is the first time I had ever seen the mystic made in her always lovely top hat, tails, and fishnet costume. It was back when DC reprinted the story arc from issues 100 through 102 in the old DC Blue Ribbon Digest series. It had an absolutely fantastic Dick Giordano wraparound cover, and I kept wondering, why is Lois Lane dressed as a female magician, and why is she hanging out with the Justice League and Justice Society? Having already fallen for Black Canary in issue 141 of The Brave and the Bold and World's Finest 262, I very quickly discovered that I would forever have a fascination with girls in fishnet pantyhose. You and me both, Browncoat. You and me both. Sean Walsh said, oh gosh, I can't get past the Bureau of Forgotten Heroes on the front. I think Martin Gray said something about that too. How is this never a thing anywhere else that I knew of before now? And how badly do I want to jump in a time machine and, amongst many other things, maybe just before I visit Walt Disney World 100 times between opening day and 1986, convince Julius Schwartz to use that as the title of DC Comics Presents Whatever Happened to Backup Features. Very. Yeah, Bureau of Forgotten Heroes. There's so much to love about that idea, but... And our last comment comes from Siskoid from Ohhatmu or Not and several other shows here on the network. Siskoid says So Batman wasn't wrapped in Zatana's fishnets on the cover? Huh. Nice of you to use a Zatana cameo to cover some forgotten heroes, by which I mean Superman and Batman as best friends. <sighs> well put, my friend. Well put. Anyway, that is going to be all for this episode of Power of Fishnets. Next episode is going to be a lot like the last episode. Zatanna makes another very brief appearance in World's Finest issue 208. This time she actually speaks. But still, it is a small cameo in a story starring Superman and Dr. Fate. So, I am bringing aboard a guest who likes Superman and Dr. Fate. It's a crazy story, and I'm sure it's going to be a fun conversation. Check that out in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening, and please continue to support this show and other shows on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Support us on social media, leave comments on the website, leave iTunes reviews, and until next time... FishNets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of FishNets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of FishNets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money from this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended.